0: Hello and welcome back to Off-Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the Diefenbunker. The Diefenbunker, officially styled Diefenbunker, Canada's Cold War Museum, is a museum and historic site housed in a Cold War-era bunker that's located about a half-hour drive from downtown Ottawa, Canada. In 1959, Prime Minister John Diefenbaker, hence the name, commissioned the creation of this four-story bunker a little outside Canada's national capital. Ironically, Diefenbunker himself never actually visited the Diefenbunker. The idea was that if a nuclear attack hit Canada, important members of the military and government could take shelter in the bunker and could continue to run the government from here during the crisis. The bunker was completed in 1961, and though fortunately no nuclear attack ever struck Canada, the site was used as a military base and communications headquarters until it was closed in 1994. Today, the Bunker is a historic site that recreates the experience of life in the bunker. Most of the site features Cold War-era equipment, furnishings, and decor to give visitors a sense of what the environment was like. The site also has some exhibits providing a more general overview of the period. Overall, it's a fascinating look at the period's anxieties and sense of the need to prepare for nuclear conflict. To discuss this with me, I'm joined by Aaron Isaac. Aaron is a PhD student at Western University whose research focuses on themes of religion, race, and the environment in early North America. Aaron is also the host of Historia Nostra, a YouTube channel that primarily explores how history is told and interpreted at museums and historic sites. Aaron and I visited the Demon Munker together, and by the time this podcast goes out, Aaron will also have a video about our visit, so definitely go check that out. It's a kind of a double feature today, since we talk about both the Diefenbunker and about the process of creating a historical YouTube channel, like Aaron has. In making this podcast and video, Aaron and I got to meet with a couple of members of the Diefenbunker's staff and to learn a bit about the museum from them. Thanks to the Diefenbunker for taking the time to talk to us and also for covering our admission to the museum. We've got a great episode for you today, so let's get into it. Excited for today's episode to be joined by a friend of mine, Aaron Isaac. Aaron, thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what your research interests are? And, and also, please introduce Historia Nostra to the audience.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, my name is Aaron Isaac. Of course, I'm a PhD student, hopefully, soon to be a PhD candidate if my comps exams go well at the University <clears throat> of Western Ontario. My research interests are varied, but my dissertation research focuses on 18th century religious history and history of the environment in Nova Scotia. History in Austria is a YouTube-based project I started thinking about about two years ago, I would say, and the channel's name means Our History, uh, a friend of mine very kindly came up with a Latin title for me that, that I think works well. And the reason that I chose this name was because my videos really explore how North American history is commemorated, as well as how historical narratives are constructed and become embedded in public memory, especially when those narratives are based on myths or mistruths or misconceptions. Um, that's the focus of my history or my, my pod- podcast, my YouTube channel. That's what I do. That's
0: the format I usually work in. Very cool. And your YouTube channel is great. We'll talk a little bit more about it later on in the podcast, but... I hope everybody will check it out, because if, if you like this podcast, I think you'll also like Aaron's YouTube channel.
1: <laughs> well, that's very kind of you um, to say.
0: <laughs> so, for today's episode, you and I visited the Diefenbunker. The full title is Diefenbunker, Canada's Cold War Museum, and this is the first time, other than when I did I did an episode with Hannah, my girlfriend, about Canada people's history. So we watched... Canada People's History together for that, but other than that, this is the first time that I've actually, like, done the activity with my guest at the same time, which is kind of cool, and I think we had a lot of fun.
1: It was a great time, yeah. Exploring an underground bunker is always a good time, and when you do it with friends, it's even better.
0: Yeah. So, the Bunker is a bunker, unsurprisingly, a a Cold War-era bunker, a little bit outside of Ottawa, Canada. It was built in the early 1960s as a Cold War measure, essentially as a site where in the event of a nuclear attack on Canada or a nuclear war, government officials and other sort of important figures could take shelter in the bunker, and Canada's government could hopefully continue to operate from the bunker, could you briefly tell us a little bit about the Diefenbunker as a, as a site today, maybe listeners who haven't been there or heard of it before, can you sort of describe what the site is like?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so like you've said, the Diefenbunker is a National Historic Site and a museum. It's on the outskirts of Ottawa in CARP, Ontario. And as the name implies, it's an underground bunker that was built really during the Cold War. It started in 1959, and it was meant to house Canada's government and some military officials in the event of a nuclear strike. So, Canada's top officials would have lived, worked, eaten, and had leisure time all within these four stories of the underground bunker. And in 1994, it was decommissioned. So it was an active military site until 1994. And I believe it was in 1996 that it became a National Historic Site. And it it transitioned into the museum that you can visit today through that time. So there wasn't really a long period in which it was a vacant site. It didn't need a ton of restoration before it it was made into a museum. It looks very similar in some ways to the way it would have when it was an active site. The museum's focus is, of course, on Canada's experience of the Cold War, as its name implies. But the reason we call it the Diefenbunker is that John Diefenbaker, who you and I know a little bit about,
2: mm-hmm.
1: he was the prime minister at the time that it was built. So it it really isn't like a prime ministerial museum, as you no. might think if you call it. You know, you're just talking about the Diefenbunker. Of course, it's going to have times to do with Diefenbaker, but it really doesn't. It's really more about the men and women who lived in this or worked in this bunker, I should say. So the Cold War is a period just for, you know, people who might not know that historians tend to benchmark between the end of the Second World War in 1945 and the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. So it, it's quite a long period of history as well. But this of course is kind of representing one of the most tense moments in that period of time.
0: Mm-hmm. We, originally our idea, Visiting it. it was so we both did our undergraduate degrees at the University of Saskatchewan, and we both worked at the Deepen Bunker Can or the, sorry the Deepen Baker Canada Center.
1: The Deepen Canada Center.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. at different so times both... though, which was weird. Cause I don't think we had really any crossover in our in our different stints at the Diefenbaker Center.
0: That's true. Yeah, I think we we sort of just missed each other there. Yeah. But. But we both worked there, and, and so I think we thought the Bunker would be a fun fit for us for that reason. Ironically, actually not much Diefenbaker at the Bunker. Yeah. Well, but we had but. heard
1: so much about it because people love to leave <clears> TripAdvisor reviews for the Bunker at the Diefenbaker Canada Center's TripAdvisor page. <laughs> so we, need to see, we needed to see what the hype was about.
0: <laughs> right. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So most of the museum of the Bunker is... Like a historical recreation of what the environment of the deep bunker would have been like during the Cold War, there are a couple of exhibits as well. So there's there's an exhibit on an overview of the Cold War, and there was an exhibit about Berlin during the Cold War. There's an exhibit about sort of daily life during the Cold War. So th- so there's there's some overview content, and then there's what was actually happening at the site, or what it, what the site would have looked like at the time as well. And I'll also mention that you're planning to release a, a YouTube video on our visit on Historia Nostra, and in coordinating this, we got to speak to some of the staff at the Bunker and hear a bit about their perspectives on the site, so we may reference that a, a couple of times here. If we bring that up, that's, that's what that is. We talked to them a little bit about it. So, I wanted to ask you about what sorts of th- historical themes you thought stood out about the Cold War. Like, if you were, if you, if you're a visitor and you visit this site, what is sort of the the lesson about the Cold War that you felt like was being taught?
1: Yeah, I should mention too that you can see. The layout of these these floors, specifically, I think the fourth the four hundred level, which is the first level you visit, they're fully digitized. You can do a, a museum from home tour at the Deepen website. Of course, we'll do a, a deep dive on my YouTube channel. But for visitors who want to kind of look at what these spaces looked like on their own terms, they can do that there. But yeah, for me, the thing that really distinguishes the Deepen Bunker from other Cold War sites or materials would be that you as a visitor are really invited to imagine what it would have been like to occupy this space. I think that's one of the most compelling parts of visiting this bunker is the first thing you visit is the decontamination showers and you're forced to walk through them. Well, that is you were you were walk, forced to walk through them before some changes were implemented for accommodating COVID visits. So this is based on, I think, my previous visit and understandings that I've taken from just the the virtual tour you can do. But yeah, you can walk through the decontamination showers and into the health ward or medical center. And then you're also going through living spaces and, you know, shower rooms and things like that. And, and trying to kind of put yourself in that space, I think, is something we as visitors tend to do. So... You see all of this aged equipment and a lot of furniture that looks like it probably came from, like, your grandpa's basement. Like, that's kind of the vibe you get with a lot of these spaces. And, yeah, so the equipment is what the government and officials would have been using to stay in touch with the outside world in the event of a nuclear strike. And, you know, there's an entire room for a computer. And there's, you know, huge recording studios for the, the radio, the CBC, that would have been active in there. Mm-hmm. In parts of the museum, emergency measures are played, messages are played on a loop. So if you remember, I think this was on the first floor, when we're walking through and it says, oh, this is not a drill. A nuclear strike has been reported. Duh, duh, duh. The, the exact audio escapes me. But you're kind of invited to imagine that you're back in the 60s and in the space at that time. Of course, it takes you out of that a little bit in some of the the rooms based more on the public experience of the cold war so they have a room recreating a 60s kitchen and a room showing some of the emergency measures that the public w- were urged to to take in creating their own home shelters so and those rooms include like manuals detailing some of the supplies that you should keep in a shelter or how you might build an underground shelter so, those are really interesting, but you get the idea of the lived experience of the Cold War in a way that you might not at other sites or in different ways of doing history like a book or a movie. The political history and context of the conflict, they are emphasized in the panels, but they're less emphasized throughout the museum. Rather, the emphasis is placed on the actual people who contributed to the building of the bunker or the men and women's experiences who lived through this period working in the bunker. While the nuclear war didn't become a reality, the Diefenbunker bunker makes it clear that Canadians in the 60s, or at least those in the government, took this threat very seriously. And that's an impression that the museum certainly leaves you. The space was kept ready in case of emergency through the time. I think something both of us acknowledged when we were going through the museum is that there's a lot of information available on the panels in each section, especially in the first level that you walk through, like we said, the 400 level. So visitors can really make their own adventure in a way when they're going through this space. In fact, I, I would say there's too much information available to the fact that you you can't really get all of it in, the, in one visit. You have to go back multiple times if you want to read out all the material. You would be quite fatigued, I think, after one visit trying to get it all but that means that as a visitor you can kind of spend more times in the rooms or on the, the different aspects of the cold war that you find the most interesting so my experience probably isn't the universal experience your experience probably isn't either but that's one of the really interesting things about this space is that visitors are also bringing their own interest into it that being said the narratives or themes that stood out to me were really the ones that are emphasized in the audio guide which are available again on the Diefenbunker's bunkers website but the audio guide really emphasizes the experiences of the people who worked here so you can even hear like snippets of their of their audio coming through and i would highly recommend that people take advantage of the audio guide as a way to kind of streamline your visit a little bit if you're Feeling overwhelmed by the amount of information available, or like if you're like me and you find it hard to slow down when you're walking through a space like this to really take the time to read the panels
0: mm-hmm. that makes sense to me, and I think certainly the emphasis through most of the museum, which is the the historical recreation, I think is that more more human experience of the Cold War as opposed to the big picture geopolitics that sometimes are are more focused on, Mm -hmm. which is obviously that's still present in the museum. There's an exhibit discussing that, but I think that's my sense is that that's less of what you go to the museum to see. And one thing that stood out to me and that one of the staff members, Sean Campbell had mentioned to us when we spoke to him was the theme of preparedness. Mm -hmm in the cold war and the idea that there was sort of a a very strong cultural emphasis i think some people some people today might call it an obsession some people today might say it was you know a very rational response but the theme of preparedness where you need to be ready in case essentially the the world ends right armageddon happens and one thing that came through to me in the site is how detailed the planning was in terms of this preparedness. Mm-hmm. So as examples, there's the there's a CBC radio room where in the event of nuclear war, the Canadian government could continue to send or to broadcast important messages to the Canadian public notifying them about what was going on that the government was hopefully still functioning, that sort of thing. That was my favorite room, by the way. I thought the radio room was cool, but that's yeah. also because I study media history. There's, in the basement, or I guess it's all sort of basement in a way, <laughs> but uh, in on the, on the furthest down floor, on the bottom floor, there's a vault, and the vault was intended to hold the Bank of Canada's reserve of gold so that Canada could still stay somewhat economically afloat I suppose although in the event of a nuclear war I don't know if that's going to be the biggest reason why the economy struggles but <laughs> anyway that was the that was the intention and and so the details that are focused on were were interesting to me and it really showed me like how focused people were on being prepared mm-hmm. I think that sometimes when people in the public or even historians learn about the Cold War and these preparedness me- measures, whether it be building government bunkers, whether it be regular people building backyard bunkers and that sort of thing. They learn about these measures, and some people feel like this was a paranoid time in history, is sort of obsessed with something that never ended up being a problem. Mm-hmm. And I think some people have a very different interpretation, which is that you know that made a lot of sense. Should we? still be preparing sort of thing. Do you think this museum emphasizes one of those impressions about preparedness over the other?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think this actually ties back for me to another thing that we talked about with Sean, who's the visitor experience manager at the Dievenmunger, who very kindly offered to to sit down with us before we wandered through. And the thing he said that stuck with me was, the idea of how quickly all of these prepared, these measures taken to prepare for a possible strike became obsolete because of course, with every moment of tension like this, we see kind of a spike in the rapid progression of different technologies. In this case, nuclear weapon technology, of course, being an obvious concern. So the message the museum sends, in my opinion, is less that people prepared out of paranoia or out of being overprepared and rather that there was very little that the general public could actually do to be fully prepared in the event of of a nuclear strike. Of course having stores of food or water and a place to be underground would be a great idea but if you're in the direct line of a of a strike there's very little that you can do to protect yourself from that. Yeah. And I so I think what I take from that is that it's part of human nature to want to be prepared for something or feel like you can control something. And this has to do with some of the the messaging that was being sent to the public at the time. We feel like we need to take proactive measures to protect ourselves from a threat. So even if those measures might not hold up in practice, giving the public and the government officials, in fact, something that they feel they can do, I think, is a hope or a way to feel in control of a situation and to prevent public panic. And so that's that's kind of the idea that I took away from the museum, is that even though the measures promoted to Canadian families were unlikely to withstand a nuclear strike, doing something was better than nothing and keeping people from panicking was not doing nothing. Mm. So this really hit me, I think, the most when we got into what the museum calls the Situation Center, but when we were walking through it, we were like, oh, this must be the Situation Room, where you see on the 300 level details about which cities were going to be likely targets and, you know, some information about the populations of those cities or the ways that those those places would be impacted by a nuclear strike and some of the fallout that would happen afterwards are very clearly laid out. and. What you don't see a lot of in that space is information about how places would be helped in the in the wake of an, a nuclear strike. You don't see very yeah. much information about sending aid to, to to those areas. So it's more about okay, what are we losing if this spot is is struck? I think is the information you get from the museum. So that that indicates for me that they were, you know, interested. Yes, in helping people feel like they could prepare for this but that they were also very ready to reconcile with you know losses in the event of nuclear war.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. This is this is my amateur psychology opinion about people. So uh, to be very clear to everyone listening, I don't really know what I'm talking about. I'm not a psychologist. <laughs> psychologist, but I do think this is my like big big idea about human psychology, is that people often, when they feel anxious about a situation, want to feel like they're doing something to improve the situation, even when a lot of the time it's not really a situation that you have any control over. Mm-hmm. And, and so people will do little things to feel like they're at least bettering the odds that the thing turns out well. And I feel like a lot of this is true of a lot of the Cold War. I think about like you see those old duck and cover videos where children hide under their desk, and that was supposed to protect them from a nuclear blast. Somehow, mm-hmm. you know, the defense bunker is not exactly that because at least when it was originally commissioned, it would have it would have helped prevent the government from going under in the event of a Cold War
2: mm-hmm.
0: or or a hot war. It was the Cold War, but the Diefenbaker quickly, as you learn at the site, quickly became obsolete. And I think that this is also a theme in the Cold War, is the theme of defensive measures not really being able to keep up with the improving weapons technology. Mm-hmm. And we learned about this at the Diefenbaker Center as well, where, at least when I worked there for a time, there was a big exhibit about the Avro company that built the Avro Arrow. And part of the story of the Avro Arrow being canceled, famously, is that it was a interceptor technology that quickly became obsolete based on the weapons technology. And so I think that that was a, that was a challenge of the Cold War, and that was a theme that is common to some other things that happened in the Cold War that, that are, also carries through at the bunker
2: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that also... It, the Diefenbaker shows a bit of a disconnect between the, the measures the government were willing to take and what they thought was necessary to be prepared for a nuclear strike versus what they were telling the public uh, with, <clears throat> was adequate preparation, which possibly goes back to your point about, you know, people feeling that hiding under a desk is going to be something they can do. Like, I think it's more about calming, calming nerves also an amateur psychologist over here. Um, <clears throat> but but yeah. then you see the, the technology being put to help the bunker withstand a strike, and you're like, well, is a couple of cedar blocks built into somebody's basement really going to have the same effect as this much more sophisticated technology, which also quickly becomes obsolete, played out on the scale?
0: Another theme that I thought this ties into with, with other interpretations of the Cold War is... I think there's often a theme in this period. I'm not sure exactly how to describe it, but there's a tension between banality and terror,
2: mm-hmm.
0: where on the one hand there was this possibility of this basically impending Armageddon, end of the world situation, but on the other hand things being fairly mundane actually and I think that this was sort of a constant tension, is my impression, during the Cold War. But some sites tend to emphasize one over the other. And I was thinking about this in comparison with, I did a podcast with Stephen Langlois, who who you know, <laughs> about a site that produced materials for the American Nuclear Weapons Program. It was an industrial site that that was part of the supply chain. For, for American nuclear weapons. And even though the, the result of creating nuclear weapons would be a horrible, terrible event, the site itself, the experience of it was pretty banal. It was like a an industrial job, a, a factory job, other than, well, I would encourage people to check that out if you're interested, but a lot of people got very sick from working there, which is not just banal, but that was discovered many years later. I feel like the bunker also exemplifies this tension because the whole site, in a way, is sort of founded on the idea that this was a a terrifying time, that you needed to have these extraordinary measures, but also the impression that you get in the site. So the site was occupied by people. It was used by military staff, even though there was no nuclear war happening. And so people were living in there. And The sense that I got is that that was a banal experience, the day-to-day drudgery of living in this bunker, and I think some people would not come out of the bunker for long periods of time, and so there's not a lot to do in this bunker. People would try to make entertainment. We saw there were places where they would have dances and parties and things, Mm -hmm. or play cards I guess that sort of thing but the overall experience of being there was banal even though the purpose of it was terrible Mm -hmm.
1: yeah absolutely and I think that's one thing that's really special about this site is again going back to the lived experience of this time is you really get that impression also because you're walking through and you're like well it's dropped tile ceiling and like laminate or linoleum floors and it feels very 60s in its architecture in some ways and you have these very tangible items that you can maybe relate to like older office chairs and things like that where you might recognize that too but again this is also an extraordinary site. so yeah I absolutely think it embodies that kind of disconnect uh, that you're talking about.
0: One thing that John Campbell mentioned to us when we spoke to him is that many of the patrons of the museum are older people who lived through the Cold War themselves. You and I did not live through the Cold War mm-hmm. and I realize that I'm asking you to speculate a little bit but do you get a sense that people our age who were born a little bit after the end of the Cold War interpret it differently than people who lived through much of it or maybe were were old enough to understand the politics of what was going on and, and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, obviously for us this is all very theoretical, or I'll say that word again, theoretical. Mm-hmm, yes. But people who can remember this period, I would assume, come to the sites like the Diefenbunker with their own memories and wanting to kind of tap into those memories as they're walking walking through these sites and how this period of time impacted them, their families, the kinds of media that they were consuming at the time, be it television or radio. But I would guess that sites like this also for those generations kind of act as a way for them to look behind the curtain. So comparing their experience of this period with what the government was actually doing to prepare for the possibility of nuclear war and whether their experience of what they thought the government was doing aligned with what was happening. So how would the government have reacted? They might go in and come away with, you know, a more complete picture of this period of time. Yep. And it might challenge their own memories of, of this time in some interesting ways. But I think it's also probably quite emotional if this is a time that you remember to walk through a space like this wherein you might remember the uncertainty of the time, and that's something that's really emphasized in a site, like the Diefenbunker, is that we really did not know. Like, you can always say, oh, you overprepared for something when the worst doesn't happen, but to to be thrown back into a time where you don't know whether nuclear war is going to happen or not, I can imagine that being quite an experience if you remember what it was like to live through that, whereas we're mm-hmm. only imagining what that could have been like or trying to place ourselves in those shoes. So yeah, I would guess that sites like this for those generations act as a kind of time capsule or also as a, as a reminder for future generations that political conflicts like the Cold War, they seep into multiple levels of society and that this is one kind of tier that we're experiencing, but like some of the exhibits on the 400 level indicate, there are you know, different histories that are here as well. I remember I worked very for a brief time at the Western Development Museum and was able to kind of go through some of their acquisition processes. And one of the items that they took into their collection at the time that I was there was a child's train set. And we had a conversation about, you know, we don't have very much space for storing things, so why are we taking in this train set? And the reason was, was that you could see that they had a lot of, infrastructure on this little toy display related to the Cold War. So I I don't know the name of some of the equipment because I am not an expert in Cold War history, but you could see like towers and things that were, would be recognizable to this period of history as ways that Canada was preparing and trying to be able to identify missile strikes. And it, it had made its way onto this toy set because children would be able to recognize these towers and things like that so so yeah it it's felt on multiple levels i imagine that for people who experience this coming back to the deep and bunker is really a way to reconcile their own experience with this national narrative
2: Hmm.
0: that's an interesting story about that train set i think one thing that is not unique to the cold war certainly but i think comes through in the cold war is just how deeply the conflict was saturated into the popular culture of society and even popular culture for children train set is a good example or you look at comic books from the era as another example or Mm -hmm. things like that and that's again not unique to the cold war but i think perhaps if you were to compare this to conflicts from i don't know the 18th century or something like that that would be that would be quite different
1: Yeah, I think we also tend to think about, in the post-First World War period, we like to think about all wars as total wars as well, Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, I think that also relates to this where, you know, war might be, in other periods, more separated from civilian populations, whereas this is a very obvious example of a conflict that, although it didn't, get to a total war necessarily in the same way that the second world war did it was still very much in the public awareness and people were you know concerned about it and that was playing out in a couple of different ways
0: Mm -hmm. yeah to the theme about do older people or younger people experience a site like this differently i do think that there's a difference in terms of thinking about the cold war where to me, at least, and I, I would guess quite a few people in my generation, the Cold War and the sort of the constant anxiety about a potential nuclear conflict feels very foreign. It feels very far away, even though the Cold War only actually ended a few years before I was born, and I think that that is a difference where, like, the the possibility of nuclear war seems like kind of like a. a glad that's over sort of thing to young people. Whereas I think to older people, it it feels like a, I mean, it obviously was a lived experience and so still feels like a, like very real in that way. Mm -hmm. That's the thought that I had on that. And I I think to young people, sometimes it feels like the cold war is over. There's obviously no way a nuclear conflict could happen now because that's over, which, you know, is, it still is a potential threat. Countries still have nuclear weapons. War could happen. Just because we don't have this relationship between the United States and its allies versus the Soviet Union and its allies anymore doesn't necessarily mean that that, that threat is over. That's a that's a cheery thought, I guess, for our podcast.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I think that visiting sites like this kind of contextualize why, like, for example, North Korea's investing in nuclear weapons is a concern for countries that maybe have thought that this isn't going to be like a tangible threat anymore, that it's something that we've moved past, like you've said. I think that knowledge about something like that hits different on different generations and that, yeah, sites like this can function as like a a bridge between those gaps in knowledge or experience.
0: Yeah, that makes sense to me. I wanted to ask you about, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but is there anything that you want otherwise that we haven't mentioned yet that you think, makes this an especially engaging space as a visitor, as a way to learn about the Cold War. One thing that I liked about the museum was, in general, the museum puts emphasis on engaging with, as you said, people who worked at the site, and so they've done a whole bunch of interviews with former staff at the site from before it closed. And most of the text panels, as you go around the museum, They have like a little description of what each room was, and then they'll have some quotations from people who worked there describing their experience. And I think that that's a a nice way of integrating the human experience of the site into it. Did you have any thoughts on this topic about how they make this engaging for visitors?
1: Right. Yeah, I think this kind of goes into... The way different medians teach history and the things that are emphasized in the way that we want to understand history and different historians will have different opinions about what matters that's something that's always hotly debated but for me the value of a site like the Bunker, as opposed to like reading a book on the cold war for example would be that books and more traditional museum panels will really emphasize events and people's dates which aren't things that we tend to be very good at remembering the first time that they're told to us. And for me, those kinds of details matter less than conveying why history matters or why a history carries into our lives now, which I think are more important messages to convey, especially to young people who might not understand why history matters. Mm. And I think a site like the Diefenbunker, because it places you into this environment where you're you're forced not forced but encouraged to imagine yourself in in that time I think that it it encourages you to remember how you felt in that space which for me is much more memorable than these more facts and figures type type pieces of information that tend to be emphasized in more traditional history texts about events like the cold war you also get like we've talked about before, the, the more local history of the Cold War. You have the details mm. from people who worked in this space rather than you know these more abstract ideas from the political context of the time, which is also available there, but the other element might be missing from other means of teaching history.
0: Mm. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, and I think, again, something like the audio guide where they're using these voices and narrating them as well as you being able to read them really makes that hit home. So that's what I would say is the difference between something like the Diefenbunker or a living history site generally is that it's less about who, what, and like those dates and things and more about the why and the how did that feel kind of an experience.
0: That makes sense to me, and I think that that has a lot of value for the public. I think historians increasingly realize, especially now during an era where you can look up facts very quickly online about dates, locations, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. that emphasizing memorizing the facts is I think for a lot of historians becoming less important as compared to interpreting and, and understanding the themes of a period. Mm-hmm. And I think that A site that encourages you to remember what going there was like, how you felt when you were there. That sort of thing is valuable for that. I still remember how I felt when we went into the commissary and I saw that staff had to pay for their own toothpaste. I was mad. Yeah. (laughs) uh, That's not a luxury good. It's not, don't put it with the chocolate bars, just give them toothpaste.
1: Yeah. They're living underground. They deserve toothpaste. (laughs) Surely the government can put the bill for that
0: yeah (laughs) all right so i always ask this question if what was your favorite thing about the deepen bunker and also if you were in charge of the site and you could change one thing about it what would you like to change
1: yeah so my absolute favorite thing about the deepen bunker is that they offer escape rooms for sure I know that's not the most historically based bit, but this kind of ties into a broader thing that the museum is doing, which I see a lot of museums that I've been in conversation with doing, where they're becoming more essential community institutions. They're looking for ways to offer services that the community is asking for, rather than just trying to assume they know what the community wants. So this ties into some of the kids' events that they do. The day that we visited, they were offering not a haunted house, but kind of a... Halloween-based events for kids, and they have artists in residence exhibits, which are another way that they're bringing in other perspectives. For example, the current artists in residence exhibit, I'm not going to be able to say the Algonquin word because I am a white lady from Saskatchewan, but the English translate to an image of the land, which it's really about Indigenous perspectives on some of the maps. That were produced during the Cold War and adding that indigenous relationship to the land into these narratives and trying to include those voices that have been excluded in other histories of the Cold War. So they're they're looking for ways to to bring other voices in as well as like looking for what the community needs from them, which I think is really important work.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we didn't get to see anything by the artist in residence, unfortunately, when we were there. But it sounded really interesting. It was an exhibition about sort of a lot of these Cold War political maps were planning from the government's perspective what were important sites or what are the things that Canada needs to protect and this artist is essentially revising that or or providing an Indigenous perspective on that to show what from an Indigenous perspective we would consider important or worth protecting to prioritize protecting that sort of thing so that sounded Very interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so that's open until January thirty first. (laughs) So if we make our way back to Ottawa at any point, perhaps we can we can catch that.
0: What was the What was the artist in residence name again?
1: Her name is Marie Brasscoop. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly. It looks like it might have a francophone kind of pronunciation, but the details are available on their website for that. Yeah, and. To your question about how I would change this museum if I I could, I feel like that ties into a common kind of reviewer's problem, which is I have all sorts of ideas about what might be misleading about certain sites. This one, not so much because I'm not an expert in this period of history, but sometimes it's harder to say, okay, now you're in the place of the administrator. What are you going to do? Yes. And... I really don't know. I think they're doing a lot of really great work here, especially with the work that Sean has done on like the audio guide and having replicas of the entire bunker in in certain spaces so that you can see kind of where you are with reference to the rest of the site. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'd make people start in the safe because that's my favorite part of, of the bunker. I think it's the most cool space and then have you kind of work your way up. But yeah, I think they're they're. They're doing a great job, and maybe they're more the, the current staff, that is, are more uh, in a position to make those calls than me. I'm not sure what I would want to what I would want to change. Do, do you have any ideas while you were there?
0: Require a, a smaller group size to do the escape room. We didn't get to do the escape room,, yeah. <laughs> because we were a small group. Um, <laughs> that's just a goofy answer. In, in seriousness, I don't know. I would be interested to learn a little bit about where they acquired their artifacts from. That's sort of a, a smaller detail, but but it would be interesting to know a little bit more if there was some discussion about how they how they acquired those artifacts. But yeah, in general, I agree they they're doing a, a good job, and I I enjoyed my visit, and it was uh, definitely worth checking out.
1: Yeah, I guess that's a good point. Is that Sean did mention that the bunker had been stripped of most of its its furnishings by the time that it it was transitioning into the museum as we know it now so a lot of the stuff that you see has been brought in since then which isn't uncommon in sites that have been restored mm-hmm. but absolutely maybe some of the stuff is from you know my grandpa's basement that uh, that we just don't know about that
0: <laughs> yeah i want to talk to you a little bit about your youtube channel as well historia nostra
2: mm-hmm.
0: so Why did you decide to create a historical YouTube channel, and what will viewers learn by watching your videos?
1: So yeah, History Nostra was born, in a way, out of my love-hate relationship with heritage sites and museums. As you know, I was lucky enough to work in a couple of museums while I was an undergraduate student at the University of Saskatchewan, the first being the Western Development Museum, which of course, Tyler Becky is talking about in her episode with you. Mm And then the Diefenbaker Canada Centre, which, you know, we've mentioned in this episode.
0: Yeah, one day I feel like I'll have to get all the old Baker Center staff on a on a big special episode of the podcast. That would be that would be fun. Well, I think
1: the closest thing we've done to that is one year we challenged another museum on campus's staff to a trivia night. So it was the Dief docents versus the Museum of Antiquities staff, and mm-hmm. we won but we lost the category that mattered most to me but anyway so <laughs> yeah as an historian I always make it a priority to visit museums when I'm visiting any place I, I think that's a really great way to get to know the local history typically mm. but I find myself frequently frustrated by the ways that history is taught on site or the impressions left by these heritage sites and museums mm. that sometimes obscure history rather than enlighten visitors to it and usually as I've already commented, commented on this really comes down to an investment in nationalistic or patriotic narratives maybe yeah. I haven't already commented on this but I think it comes down to investments in certain myths that museums tend to reproduce rather than counter and so like museums like Jamestown Settlement, or uh, I have a video also on Notre-Dame-de-Montreal, they, they kind of perpetuate certain ideas about history because they're trying to propagate nationalistic or patriotic narratives. Others are sites like Grand Prairie or the Tunnels of Moose Jaw, where the stories told there aren't true, but are based on, you know, fictive stories or on legend. And these are really designed to draw tourists to the site. And so I think the, the idea for the channel really came from something I recognized about historiography, which, for those who don't know, are studies about how history has been written over time, or histories about history, which is that the historiographies that I really, really like are the ones that tend to comment upon the present or current events that are impacting what historians are writing on. So an example that you know comes to mind for me is how histories of enslavement or Black histories changed during the Civil Rights era. I wonder if you have any that come to mind, because that was the only one that came to mind as I was drinking my coffee this morning.
0: Hmm. Well, that's a. I mean, that's a pretty important one for my own field. Mm-hmm. Let me think about another one. Certainly, uh, the American Civil War historiography of that was significantly impacted by the fact that a lot of historians lived through or maybe even served in the Vietnam War. That was, a, that was another one. Yeah, Yeah. what are some other, some other examples?
1: You know, or like during the Quiet Revolution, histories of French Canada. So, yeah, I realized that a lot of the things that I found frustrating at these sites I was visiting could be explained by looking at when and why these sites were established. Because as you and I both know, the ways of doing things in museums tend to get embedded over time. And it becomes very difficult to revise some of these ways of teaching history or some of the narratives told on site, specifically at sites like Grand Prairie where it's, it's really based around the Evangeline narrative. And so it, it's hard to di- divorce that site now from this very well-known story, where there's also physical infrastructure on the site that's related to this and so what i wanted to do with the channel was look at how museums are representing these histories and maybe if we can explain some of the reasons why and that's not to say that all museums do really terrible work there's a lot of museums like the Diefenbunker that are doing really great jobs of highlighting historical nuance and complexity but Not all sites are working to keep up with historiography or what what historians are now saying. And so I wanted to look into why and also think about how the field is or how museums are different depending on where they are and maybe how, how sites might do better at incorporating like indigenous voices or black voices in these sites that tend to be fairly colonial still and have maybe excluded those voices historically. And if they are including those voices now, when did that start to happen and under what terms is something that I'm interested in as well. So the, the YouTube hmm. channel was really an excuse for me to start compiling and visiting more sites like this and, and thinking about these things.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You also have some videos that are not just about... His, although historic sites are the main focus, you also have some videos about board games or books and so one of my favorite videos you've done I think this was actually a two-part video was the episode you have with with Ben Hoy about board games partly because I've had a class with with Ben Hoy and played his the board game that he designed and and all that stuff but um, that's one of my my favorites.
1: Yeah that ties into kind of the broader idea of how we go into teaching history I'm interested in and how these narratives are constructed so I do have some videos that talk a little bit more directly to that theme yeah and board games are just so fun so unfortunately Ben and I or Dr. Hoy and I did talk a bit about video games as well but that's maybe a subject for a future episode I know that you've recently done a podcast episode on Assassin's Creed so Mm -hmm, yeah there's fertile ground there for sure
0: definitely so what do you think are some of the challenges of creating a YouTube channel that's oriented to toward public history, what are some of the challenges you've experienced that, that people watching the videos may not realize?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest misconception that is partially our fault as historians for in, when working in public history not being more upfront about is that people tend to think that there is one history and that history <clears throat> is universal. And so in videos where I comment on the fact that, you know, history really changes depending who's telling it, there's been a bit of pushback on that idea because people don't necessarily understand that you know, depending where you where you're standing in in a historical narrative, your experience is going to change and the way that we remember these events is going to be also very different. So I've just released a video about the Battle on the Plains of Abraham. This moment is of course very painful for a lot of French Canadians even today, but for British descended Canadians or other settler Canadians, this is a very different history because it's it's one of the moments that contributed to Britain eventually claiming France's holdings in North America. But it's 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 a different history depending who is trying to explain it. And, and our commemoration of these kinds of events don't try to grapple with that typically. They, especially when trying to incorporate Indigenous narratives, tend to do a poor job in trying to weave Indigenous peoples into an idea of one history or a multicultural history rather than looking at the fact that different people had very different motivations during these events. And that it's okay to recognize that and mm. it's probably also in our interest to reconcile with the fact that you know settler Canadians have had a very hard history um, and have not treated Indigenous peoples well and ignoring that in our sites doesn't do us a service which is something I think mm-hmm. more and more we're, we're recognizing now but it's certainly something that certain communities are still very resistant to talking about
0: that makes sense. I think it's helpful for people to think about how the way people often interpret history is as a story. Mm. And a story is always going to be very different depending on who the narrator of the story is, which character's perspective you look at the story from. And so that's important to realize, but definitely that's a that's a challenge sometimes talking to the public about history.
1: I mean, we love to talk about, quote unquote, the public like we historians are not a part of the public. Yes. And of course, because we have quite a bit of education, we we do bring a certain perspective, but one of the fun things for me about being a colonial historian going into a site like Diefenbunker is this isn't a history that I have a lot of awareness of. So I get to kind of experience that site like other visitors might. And while I have ideas about the presentation of history that I've I've you know developed over the course of visiting lots of museums, I too am am really just a member of the public when I'm coming into some of these places, mm-hmm. and I I can enjoy them too. Like these sites aren't just for laymen, as as you might say, but they they can be enjoyed and really embraced by people who are passionate about history as well, be they academically trained or amateur.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, that's one of the the fun things for me about having worked on this podcast is very few of the topics that we've covered so far, I would say really squarely fall right in my historical specialty. There are, you know, there's, there's plenty that I have, you know, I do primarily American history and some Canadian history as well. So it's not that I know nothing about every topic, but there are some topics I know very little about. You know, I, I apply some of my historian skills when I'm looking at these things, but often am looking at them from the perspective of a non-expert
2: mm-hmm.
0: which i think is a kind of a distinct way of looking at it not expert but also have some background in history one thing that i have encountered as a challenge is thinking about like who the audience is for this content and thinking about like how much context to provide about these topics because i think at least the people who i suspect I don't like have like a listener survey or something, but I think some of the people who listen to the podcast are other historians, some of them are not, and they're just interested in history. Do you have a sense of like, do you have an approach to this when you make your YouTube videos? How much context to provide? Do you have a sense for like who is watching your videos?
1: Yeah. Well, no one's watching my videos, but I, I...
0: I watch your videos.
1: <laughs> I have um, a sense that when because of the content that i'm producing it's mainly based on historic sites and and museums these sites are already created for people without a background in the histories that that are being displayed so that's a really great starting point is looking at what the museum is saying to people coming in cold and so i kind of try to offer a summary about not only the history of the museum itself, which is, I think, really important to start with when you're talking about, as we've talked about, some of these problems that re- kind of rear their head over time based on maybe the history of the museum itself, but also a summary of what you're gonna see if you go to this museum. And so that that provides some some of the baseline details that people might n- need to know to, to be able to follow along with the history. Of course, my my videos tend not to be very bogged down in in scholarship. But when I do use scholarship, you know, it's 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 a good way to point people if they want to learn more, but kinda of knowing where to draw the line for, for a fifteen to twenty to half an hour long video. But yeah, I, I would say it hasn't been as much of a problem for me because I'm basing these these videos on sites that are already designed for people who who don't know anything about these sites necessarily, right. yeah. And children, yes. children don't necessarily mm. have a have a a compli- complex grasp of of historical topics yet. So because right. these sites are designed to be for typically both adults and children, there's a line that they're walking about what content to use, which presents problems sometimes because we we think we need to censor certain details from children, Hmm. but it also makes the information quite accessible.
0: Right. Do you have a favorite story or a favorite episode from your YouTube channel?
1: Yeah. So I'm going to be very diplomatic in the way that I answer this question, because I really find that every project I've worked on, and especially all the collaborations I've done, every experience offers something new and something more interesting. I think that I have least favorite episodes, but I don't know that I have favorite episodes. Hmm. The experiencing history ones, which are the which is the playlist about museums and heritage sites, those are the ones that i I feel the most passionate about and I'm the most excited to work on. but I am visiting with people about like you know, recent collaborations at Ministers Island or on the Plains of Abraham or at Grand Pre. These were all really great conversations and really great ways to get to know, you know, what somebody's interested in and some of their, their work that they're doing. I think my favorite moments from recording these episodes tend to be just the experience of visiting the sites themselves. Yeah. The Maliseet Trail video was an interesting one to work on because we had hiked me and a friend of mine, Graham Christie, who was doing the camera work for me that day, to the top of Hayes Fall, which is kind of where the trail directs you today if you're taking it. This was, for people who haven't seen the video, part of a historic portage route used by Wabanaki communities in leading from modern-day New Brunswick all the way into Maine. But there's a short, short section of it that's been kind of recreated and I am very clumsy. So I tripped about a thousand times during the making of that video, which were mostly expertly edited out. Um, but yeah, there's at the very end of that video, you, there's like a little blooper where you can kind of hear me crash into a fence because oh. <laughs> while at the top of the the waterfall, I like tripped and fell into the fence that was keeping people from going over the the cliff (laughs) so yeah they're all really fun but they're all they've all been really different sites as well which i think matters yeah like i i tend to i i visit historic sites when i go to new cities but the other thing i always do is i look for if there's a church that's open to visiting Mm. in that site because i do religious history i love visiting cathedrals i love looking at stained glass i love looking at the different architectural motifs that are happening in different sites like that. And so the video on Notre-Dame de Montreal was kind of, you know, a natural fit for me because I have visited that basilica many times because it's just a gorgeous Gothic revival-style basilica but also has this very interesting way of mythologizing French-Canadian history on site. Mm. So, So, yeah, to be diplomatic about it, I I love all the videos that I've worked with people on, and I don't have a favorite episode. Probably just my most recent projects are usually the ones that I think the most about.
0: Hmm. Okay, yeah, that's fair. I think your videos are really good. I mean, I think everybody <laughs> should should go check them out. I mean, I mentioned my favorite is is the. The one about board games with Ben Hoy, but but that is because I know Ben Hoy. I think you even talk about a board game that I own in in the episode. Yeah, yeah. Is it? Uh, I think it's called Freedom: The Underground The Underground Trail.
1: Yeah, um, we absolutely do talk about that one. Yeah,
0: yeah. So that that was my favorite, although I I re- that's mostly just for reasons that are kind of specific to me, but <laughs> so I I think you're. Channel is really great and, and people who are interested in learning more about historic sites and, and how they portray history should really check it out. Where can people follow you in and Historia Nostra?
1: Yeah. Well that's all very kind of you to say. We're of course on YouTube. Historian Ostra is H-I-S-T-O-R-I-A-N-O-S-T-R-A. And you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Just search up Historian Austria, and we should pop up our little symbol. Ooh, this is a, a little behind the, or clarifying common misconceptions. Nobody seems to know what my logo is, which is, uh, do you have a guess about what my logo is?
0: All right, let me look it up here. I know it's like sort of round and has like the spokes. I think, is it, is it like a, I always forget if this is pronounced chiro or cairo, is that is that what that is? Not quite. That's the first time
1: I've heard that one. Some people will say like a, a film reel. It's actually meant to be a microfilm reel.
0: Oh. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I see. Yeah. 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 Yeah, okay. yeah.
1: So if you see a little kind of real looking thing with my H N logo there, then then you're you're on the right track.
0: <laughs> but yeah, cool.
1: Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and then of course. YouTube, but we're also at historianostra.ca, which has all of our social media linked up to it.
0: Awesome. Aaron, thank you so much for talking to me on the podcast today. It's been a lot of fun. And it was fun visiting the Diefenbunker with you.
1: It was so fun. Thanks a lot, Lewis. Oh, and we should mention...
0: Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that this episode is being cross-published with a video that I'm doing on the Bunker, where you'll be able to see Lewis's face mm. if you're only enjoying this in audio content. Which will be available on the Friday, the same week that this drops into your feed. Is that right?
0: Yes. Your your video will already be out when this podcast comes out. So there'll be a video of the Diefenbunker if you want to see what it's like and see us <laughs> goofing around there. Go check it out.
1: Yeah. So you can hear us talk about it and then immediately go and watch us wander around and experience the site. Well, for Lewis's first time and my my second visit.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, thanks right. so much, Lewis. Thanks for coming on. That's today's interview. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Erin for being my guest on the show, and also for having me on her YouTube channel. Definitely go check out Erin's video about the Bunker where I appear as well. The episode offers a fascinating look at this historic site. It also features an interview with the museum's visitor experience manager, Sean Campbell, who gives us the inside scoop on the museum. I'll include a link to the video and Erin's channel in the description. Thanks also to Sean Campbell and Jordan Vetter, who work at the Bunker and were generous enough to help us plan this visit and talk to us about the museum. Off-Campus History is on all the major podcast apps, so subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the podcast, consider leaving a review or telling somebody about the show. It really helps me out. And follow the show on Facebook and Instagram to see some historical photos and stuff related to the episodes, and for announcements about when new episodes are coming out. If you're a fellow historian who's interested in being a future guest or someone who would just like to send me a comment, send me an email at offcampushistory@gmail.com. At Artwork for the podcast was made by Neth Karia and music was made by Nella Ruiz. Thank you again for listening and I hope you'll join me next time for some more off campus history.